Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we got some bonus footage. Yeah, some fun um, bonus content. Well, material. Bonus footage. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can you guys see us okay right now? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty blurry. Anyways. <laughs> How many times have we said that? I always end up saying that. I'm like, yeah, bonus footage. We've got some new <laughs> raw footage. It's like, no, it's not. We're, we're not doing a YouTube it's channel. It's audio footage. Audio material. Anyways, um, yeah, so we wanted to throw this out there for all yeah. your listeners just as a little bit of a tidbit because we had one of our listeners reach out to us um via facebook and we had a really interesting discussion and we just wanted to put it out there please join our facebook discussion group yeah or just if you want to chat about anything that's unexplained undiscovered simply straight up strange that's what we're all about totally. so it's a free forum that you can just kind of Contribute whatever you feel like. Yeah, so hop on there and come join in. And, like, it, it doesn't have to be paranormal. It could be historical as oh, well. Yeah. Like, anything you're interested in. Um, yeah, we, we love chatting with people in there. So please come join the the little Into the Portal mm-hmm. family we've got going on on exactly. Facebook. Exactly. And, of course, if you have any commentary on what we are discussing of on course. our topics. Absolutely. So, yeah. So this guy, Chris B., uh, he's actually from Montana. He is a veteran Marine, uh, also a student pilot. So he is well-versed in aviation and right. the potential pitfalls of of piloting a plane. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he reached out and had some really interesting ideas. So we're going to get into them. Yes, we are. One by one. <laughs> yep. Um, so where are we going to start here? I guess maybe we'll start off with his sort of preliminary points as far as getting off course for veteran pilots, because, you know, we tried to defend the honor of, say, veteran pilots by not not really, you know, diminishing their experience, but it is a real thing. And so Chris had the good point that essentially, yeah, veteran pilots can easily make mistakes and get lost. And he says here, in fact, the more stick time they have, the more likely they are to deny it happening. Right. I mean, that makes so, sense. I get yes. that. And, and he even makes the point, he's like, simply put, they get complacent, which is why you see pilots with 20,000 hours of experience plowing into the ground or the side of a mountain. <laughs> yeah, so we well, did look okay. into this a little bit more just to, you know, find some examples perhaps or whatever. But I didn't find any specific examples, but... It was, it is a highly, you know, recorded phenomenon. There was a guy named E.L. Wiener. <laughs> he wrote an article in 1981 that was termed complacency. Is it a useful term for air safety in the proceedings of uh, the seminar that he was covering? Okay. So essentially he's, this is a quote from Wiener. He said, complacency is caused by the very things that should prevent accidents. Factors like experience, training, and knowledge contribute to complacency. Complacency makes a crew skip hurriedly through checklists, fail to monitor instruments closely, or utilize all navigational aids. It can cause a crew to use shortcuts and poor judgment, and to resort to other malpractices that mean the difference between hazardous performance and professional performance, end quote. Well, that's an unsettling thought, isn't it? it? Yeah, exactly. So that, to me, is something that we, you know, we didn't... (laughs) We didn't want to give, we wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, but right. we need to mention this as well. And it is a real thing, right? So. Yeah. And I mean, that totally makes sense. I get that. I mean, mm-hmm. we even, even for us, obviously, like we're not pilots. We've never, I mean, we've been in passenger planes, but I mean, like even when you're driving, like that's a thing when you're driving, right? Yes. You just become sort of. It's called amnesia, driver amnesia. Yeah. Like you're used to what you're doing. So you're just kind of going through the motions, but mm-hmm. you might miss stuff because you're, you're complacent because exactly. you do it every single day. Some people even lose like tens of minutes or even an hour or two if they're on like the highway and they're just like like truck drivers 
truck drivers. Yeah. Yes, people that commute regularly, that right. type of thing. And they just kind of go on autopilot, like literally autopilot. Yeah. And they're just doing it and they don't even remember when they get home. It's like, wait a second, what? I was just driving. Like, that's weird. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, this and, and this idea of getting off course is is in direct reference to, obviously, the C-47 Skytrain exactly. in the story of Felix Moncla and the disappearance of his F-89 Scorpion yeah. in 1953 that we mm-hmm. talked about in the Part 2 episode. Yeah. And that's um, specifically what Chris was referencing for that one um, because that was one of the theories, right? That there was a Canadian RCAF plane mm-hmm. that was flying uh, roughly 30 kilometers or miles. 30 miles 30 off miles course, off course. Mm-hmm. Um, And uh, in, in U.S. airspace, and that accounted for the the bogey on radar. Mm -hmm. Now we sort of loosely suggested that, well, we didn't suggest it. One of the theories we came across was that this plane could have had something to do with the disappearance of Moncla. Like it aided in his crashing into Lake Superior or whatever. The C-40, it's a C-47 was the model of plane as a transport plane. So it's an unarmed military transport plane. And Chris pointed that, that out as well in his uh, response. So that's just something I wanted to reiterate because it's, mm-hmm. it, it did not have the capabilities to shoot something down, nor would obviously an RCAF uh, pilot be given authorization to shoot something down that was unidentified. Oh, exactly. Right? So yeah. you, you wait And he wasn't even aware of anything in his airspace. Exactly. He was so. never... And he also made the point here, Chris said that it wouldn't have had any weapons or radar. So... Right. So it, it, so that kind of rules that out <laughs> for that does, one. And yeah. we just wanted to emphasize that yeah. because that was an interesting part of the story. Exactly. But so Chris, again, yeah, he reiterated that that would basically be impossible. Right. Um, but he didn't rule out the possibility that the RCAF jet was maybe off course. So that was kind yeah. of the point. Yeah. But at the same time, probably not related to what actually happened to Moncla's. Um, F-89 jet. Right, exactly. So that was the first idea. Okay. Next idea was something I found incredibly interesting. Yeah. I was, I honestly didn't even know this could happen, but thinking about it more, I was like, that obviously makes sense, right? Let's hear it. Okay, dokie. So Chris suggested that, okay, he said that perhaps the aircraft could have reached a speed called VNE. Simply put, this is a quote from Chris, this speed is the never exceed speed at which the aircraft may likely break up in midair from the forces applied to it. Uh, Yeah, so basically, in short, this is still a continuation of the quote, um, if the pilot was too focused on looking for his bogey and accidentally exceeded B&E, this could cause an in-flight breakup of his aircraft and crash into the lake. He would have no warning or no time to make a radio call. Okay. So, so basically what happens, because I, I did look into this again, just to sort of like get more of a, an understanding of it. Mm-hmm. So basically what happens when you exceed that speed is first thing that happens is the wings will break off. And then um, also what happens pretty much simultaneously is that the, what is called the surface control controls, or sorry, control surfaces will be ripped from their fittings, which will make the aircraft pitch up. And then that's when the wings break off. And so then that's pretty, when you basically... It, Explode in the like instantaneous like, violent event when you're yeah. at that. Yeah. Especially in a fighter jet. Like, and, and, so and I mean, not to knock technology back in the day, because quite frankly, most things built, like my grandparents still have a can opener built in the 1950s <laughs> that they're still using. They got for as a wedding gift. So, like, things built in the 50s were built to last. Yeah. But at the same time, I can see how maybe something like this 
with an aircraft could happen more easily back in the day as opposed to now with, you know, there just being more instruments to, like, let you know things are happening on your plane. I I don't know. That's something maybe we have to reach out to Chris again. (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to get his secondary comments after But, I mean, that is interesting just because, as well, this was at nighttime. Like, Moncla was flying at night. He was chasing after this bogey and... Maybe, maybe, maybe that is what happened. Maybe he Chris was. even included too. He said that the V and E for an F um, eighty nine is a is six hundred and thirty six miles per hour. So that is freaking fast, man. See, that but would that's be like thing, basically like, how, instantaneous. How do you? I feel like that's like you. You don't go from whatever your average speed is to six thirty six like without noticing though. The way that. I saw it phrased on this aviation website I was looking at after was that it's very easy, especially if you are a more seasoned pilot, it's very easy to get distracted. Like if you are looking for a target, the bogey, and you just, you're not keeping track on that threshold level, it can easily happen. Hmm. And it's, it can happen faster than you might think. Right. Especially for us, like we have no, we have no piloting experience. So it's kind of hard to imagine what that would feel like. Yeah. But Again, and it is a super small. It was just Moncla and Wilson, his uh, his navigator or whatever. Yeah. So I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's another interesting theory. I mean, but very interesting. Like I honestly didn't even think about that. I was like, no, just going too fast potentially. You know, you see those kind of scenes in the movies and stuff where like a plane's crashing, it's picking up way too much speed, and things start to break I'm off almost, of it. What I'm picturing in my head is like. In Transformers, when, like, I don't know what Transformer it is that goes into a fighter jet, like, transform form, <laughs> and then, like, they'll, like, they'll be swooping in and about yeah. to land, and they'll start to break apart, and it looks like, you know, it's breaking up, but it's actually just transforming into its robot form right. or whatever, but that's kind of what I'm picturing in my head, just, like, all these pieces flying off, and then just... I can't remember <laughs> what the name in the new movies was, but in the cartoons, that was Starscream. Starscream! Yeah. yeah! Totally. Sorry, I don't know my Transformers well enough. Yeah. <laughs> Shia LaBeouf ruined it for me, so it's all good. <laughs> Just do it. Just okay, do sorry. It. We're obsessed with that video right now. Yeah. That's our motivation, Shia LaBeouf motivation, even though it's like just laugh out loud, but it's so good. <laughs> uh, anyways. Anyways. So okay, so next little theory. You wanna you wanna get into that one? Yeah, this one, um so we're sort of staying away from paranormal theories with this because obviously Chris comes from a military background and, and aviation. Yeah. And uh, a lot of these make sense. So this yeah. this third idea is funny. Yeah, this never even crossed our minds, but is really common in aviation. Mm-hmm. That is a bird strike, <laughs> which is which is an unpleasant experience for both parties, the birds yeah. and the pilots. Um, but it is exactly what you would expect it to be. It's essentially when uh, there are flocks of birds, usually larger birds like geese, like migratory birds, and planes can't avoid them, right? They fly mm. directly into them, especially if it's a prop plane. That's mm. bad. And, I, and of course, you know, any movie buffs out there, they're going to be thinking right away of the third Indiana Jones, where uh, Indiana's dad uses his umbrella and scares a bunch of seagulls, and they fly up into the air, and then the jer- the Nazi plane flies right <laughs> into it and crashes into our side of a cliff. But um, so, but that but that is very it's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about this theory is that, and something I did not know is that birds bird flocks of birds can actually appear on radar. That's like they, they appear as a blip on radar as if they are a craft yeah. because they're flying in a formation. They're tight enough together that they register as a solid object. 
Yeah, it's not sophisticated enough to sort of differentiate. Right, Um, which is just, like, very interesting. Uh And so the theory, uh, obviously, in relation to Moncla is that he may have, at nighttime, you know, limited visibility in the clouds. Mm -hmm. He may have just smashed into a flock of Canadian geese, which is definitely the type of bird that would have been over in the Great Lakes area. It's November. It is November. So there's obviously... Well, usually these birds like to migrate. True. Usually by November, especially in the Great Lakes area, I feel like it'll get pretty cold. Yeah, and the fact, but, like, do these birds fly at night? Right? Well, that's my other that's another. That's another thing. It's like, I've. how would we know? I've never seen the V formation of geese at night because you I've can't see them. I've never heard them honking. Like, we get them all the time here in Western Canada as well. Yeah. So. At the same time, though, like, we do see geese in the winter yeah. in Western Canada. Like, they don't all... No. Fly south, right? Yeah. But then we've been in Arizona before, and then you see Canada geese <laughs> walking around in Arizona, and exactly. you're like, what the heck are you doing here? You know what I always think? I always think that the Canadian geese that live here in the summer actually do migrate south, and the ones that are even further north they come migrate here. to where we are. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe everyone's Maybe. just sort of shifting south, but not as far south. Right. I don't know. So I'm anyway, that sure. was another theory. Like, Moncla could have just straight crashed into a flock of geese or a flock of birds yeah. and therefore not had time to issue any radio distress Yeah, and just went straight into Lake Superior. And the way that Chris kind of uh, talked about it, he said basically the bird strike could have shattered the aircraft's windscreen, causing the pilot to lose control. At that speed, it takes mere seconds to impact right. the water. Now, so very fast. Here's the only thing. So I, I think this is a... I think this is a at a, a likely theory. Mm-hmm. The only thing about it that doesn't stand up for me is the um, the fact that they had that blip on the radar screen, that second blip. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that there's two blips, one's Moncla, one's mm-hmm. the birds. Yeah. He smashes into the birds. Now there's one. It, he had merged with the bogey. Mm-hmm. Now there's one thing on the radar screen. Mm-hmm. If you're smashing into a flock of birds, it's my guess that that flock of birds is not going to stay in formation and therefore not be continuing to register as a solid object on radar. So they continued to watch the object on radar after Moncla disappeared, continue over the Canadian border and out of sight. Yeah. I just, unless it was a second flock of birds registering. Counter theory. Okay, let's hear it. What if exactly that, it was a flock of birds and... Maybe Moncla clipped the last bird in, like, you know, the V formation, and the others were fine. <laughs> and it was just that one unlucky bird that got either, like, sucked into his jet engine or, like, or just smashed against his windscreen, and you know what I mean? So, like, but the other I thing, guess. too, that I'm, I'm, like, I'm, like, countering my own counter is the idea that birds don't usually fly in straight lines. Like, they usually like to, like, do wide circles. They zigzag, they go of, weird well, things. They, do, like, they, they try and catch updrafts, so they will, when they're trying to gain elevation, they'll go in, like, these wide circle type things. Not, like, once they're actually up there, though, I, I'm assuming they would fly in a generally straight direction, but was this type of behavior on the radar screen consistent with the flight behaviors of birds that's my question i wish we could get that footage well the other interesting part about it too is like they said that he was chasing around this bogey for 30 minutes trying to find it now i realize it's the 50s and you're being guided by ground radar you can't Mm -hmm. see anything and lake superior is ginormous so obviously it's not like it's just it is kind of a needle in a haystack at that point Mm -hmm. but at the same time a flock of birds traveling on radar isn't going to be moving at any great rate of speed 
it's going to be in one location oh, where true. you can be like, hey, there's this blip moving relatively, like how fast can a geese fly? Like freaking yeah, no, fi- 10, 15 kilometers an hour tops. Yeah. Like not very quickly. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe a little faster than that. But like they, just, you know what I mean? Like not as fast as a jet. I wonder if there was a projected speed for that. We didn't actually come Because you that. just think that it would be easier to target it. It'd be like, okay, it's way over there. It's moving relatively slowly, it, which yeah. it would be if it was a flock of birds. That's interesting. Maybe we should do some more research into, yeah, how that actually appears on it's radar It's just one screens. of those funny things right now. We're going down a rabbit hole of oh. geese on radar screens and it's like... <laughs> Now we need to find out exactly what the migratory patterns are of northern geese are to know okay, if wait, they would be another flying another good question. The... If we're referring to migratory patterns, why the frick are these geese flying north over Canada and disappearing into the Arctic? That doesn't make sense either. Maybe they were thunderbirds. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was just a single thunderbird. Great Not question. even geese, just one giant bird. <laughs> okay, one other thing I wanted to mention before we move on to the next sort of idea was the this famous bird strike example that everyone's going to be familiar with because of Tom Hanks. And that was the miracle on Hudson. So that was the air, it was a U.S. Airways flight 1549. What was, oh, nine, 2009, January 25th, or 15th. Bleh, can't talk. Um, we probably shouldn't say it it's famous silly. because of Tom Hanks. It's famous because of <laughs> of the pilot that <laughs> saved everyone. It was Captain <laughs> Shelley. But anyways, it's made headlines in recent years because of, of the Tom film. Hanks. Yes, indeed. Because, well, I didn't know about this until Tom Hanks did it. So. Tammy. I think Tom Hanks really is actually silly. I think he had He's a, a hero. He had an alternative identity back in 2009 <laughs> for a little bit there. No, sorry. Sorry. Sully, you're a real person. I'm not going yeah. to say that. I already did say it, but I'm going to take it back. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> but anyways, yeah, we just wanted to mention that because that was something, obviously, I did want to look into bird strike examples just to see, and that is a really famous one. And no one died on that because no. it was a much bigger airplane, mind you, and it had just taken off, so it had a soft landing in the Hudson's River. Yeah. But and this again, was the daytime, which helps. Yes, exactly. That's another factor as well. But yeah, just very interesting and a very successful and modern, like rel- relatively, yeah, like you said, modern exactly. and uh, uh, all 155 people were rescued and no one suffered. There was like very few serious injuries, which yeah. is amazing. Man. Good old Sully. <laughs> Anyways. You'd think that there would be some sort of a technology to like give off some sort of a frequency or something, so that if there's a flock of birds up ahead of an oncoming plane, it would like scatter them away or something. Yeah. Or I guess with air traffic control, there's so many flights in the air that that would just be like impossible to <laughs> deal with. That is a lot to deal with. Yeah. But it just seems like, so Dang doesn't it just seem sort of like comical that we have, we've advanced so far with technology and yet like so you far. can get taken out of the sky by <clears throat> a flock of birds Yeah. with like a billion dollar, like advanced machinery running off jet fuel and you can get taken down by a couple seagulls. Like <laughs> that's not a pleasant thought. It's like, no, none I think of I these might are be sticking pleasant. to trains and automobiles. None of these are fun. Well, they are fun. To, They're like, fun to talk to about. Theoretically discuss, but mm. not to experience in real life. Okay. Well, what are we moving on to from here? Where there was a couple other interesting. Yeah. So Chris things. did have a point to make about the possibility of vertigo. Right. So this is another sort of alternative idea. So again, this is a very common problem for today's pilots and pilots of the past. Uh, it's especially dangerous at night. And Chris reiterates, yeah, especially on moonless nights. So he didn't know what the state of the moon was that night. Neither do we, but... Well, we do know that it was re- it was a little bit foggy 
from from the account. Like I don't think um, he probably was didn't he above have above the cloud line. He probably didn't. Well, if he was above the cloud line, he may have had moonlight. From the as the story goes, it sounds like it was pretty limited visibility he was overall. At, we oh my gosh, I'm sure we got our notes in front of us. Um, the, he was at about. <laughs> 20 he went down from 21 he went from to like six or seven it was like twenty thousand to eight thousand or something like Mm. that i think it was to make the intercept so i don't know where the cloudland was that night but yeah (laughs) very profound (laughs) but anyways yeah no so we did want to discuss this just because yeah like it is very common i was on aviationknowledge.com and they add just a quote from them. It says, while vertigo can re- literally mean dizziness, it is the human's failure to picture the position relative to the horizon that makes it a truly dangerous problem. Right. This is basically the reason why spatial disorientation is one of the major concerns and issues in the aviation world. So, widely widely known. Um, common. Very common. And especially, like Chris was saying, on in nighttime and on moonless nights. So I did come across some famous instances of nighttime pilot vertigo. Okay. Uh, the most famous, I think, would be in 1999 after John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane went down during a night flight over um, the water near Martha's Vineyard. Interesting. Yeah, and it was extensively reported on in, in the 90s. Yeah. And it, essentially the investigation pointed to spatial disorientation as the probable cause. It wasn't definitive, but it was probable. So again, hmm. I don't. I actually don't know if he did. He die in that accident. That's very curious. You want to quickly fact check that for me? Yeah, I do. One sec. Uh, yeah. So there was another instance too from a world famous singer called Jim Reeves. Who I'm actually not familiar with, but sure, he's very famous. Um, he suffered from again spatial disorientation when he was piloting his Beechcraft, and it crashed. And it claimed, yeah, claimed yeah, the lives he, of he, he Reeves pal- and Dean Manuel, his pianist. Right. So sorry, what were you saying? Yeah, he did die in that crash. Dang. That's the curse of the Kennedys, man. I, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it is very... Oh, and this was another one, too, from uh, Switzerland in 2000. Again, it was nighttime, and it was a... It was a, a bigger plane. It was a passenger plane. It had seven passengers in it and three crew members. And it, yeah, again... Accident, crash, bing, bang, boom. I'm not sure how many <laughs> bing, people Bing, bang, boom. <laughs> <laughs> Accident, crash, smash, bang, bam. <laughs> Wait a... <laughs> Just our morbid sense of humor. Hey, you're the one laughing. Yeah, but you, you're the one doing... Saying bing, bang, boom. <laughs> Just trying to keep it light. You reminded me of... Uh, Oh my gosh. Wing that politician. Bang yeah, what's that chick's name? Oh, I don't even want to. Sarah Palin. Girls. Going bang boom. Okay, we're not going no. there. <laughs> so, last but not least. <clears throat> so, all of these ideas had to do with Moncla's case specifically. Yes. This next sort of idea has to do with the United Airlines Flight 389. Right, which was another main focus from part two, obviously. It if was. you haven't had to listen to it, go listen to it. Do you want to recap it at all or? Yeah, so flight 389 was a passenger liner that what was the date exact date on it again? I can't. <sighs> it was 65. 65, right. Yeah. That basically was en route from New York to Chicago, routine flight, super experienced pilots and they um, were it plummeted Ooh, plummeted yeah, into the Lake Michigan. They were uh, on their flight recorder talking about how they were trying to uh, make readings on their altimeter and make adjustments like seconds before they plummeted into the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about the idea of it being either, 
you know, they flew through a zone where their instruments were just straight not working properly, or they flew through a zone where their brains were not working properly and they perceived their reality mm-hmm. different from what it actually or was. Or again, pilot complacency. Maybe again, it was none of, nothing to do with a zone of anything. Possibly. Yeah. The only thing about that, that, well, we, I'll get into that in a sec. I have yeah. an idea on that, but uh, go, you, why don't you go ahead with Chris's thought? Okay, so Chris had another idea. Just a quick mention. He, yeah, cause, because we were kind of vague on our discussion on the altimeter because we're not really familiar with it other than the fact that it is used. For altitude. Yes, exactly. It's used to determine altitude, and it has to do with barometric pressure, so you have to set it to the localized pressure and actually to get an, an accurate reading. Right. So... Okay, so he says here, the reason they were checking, this is from Chris, quote from Chris, the reason they were checking, like the pilots in, on flight 389 were checking the altimeter is because you have to set the barometer pressure on them to the correct destination reading. So like I just said. Yeah. So standard pressure is um, 29.92, and that's what would have been set for above um, 18,000 kilometers, I guess, when the airliner would have... 18,000 18, feet. <laughs> feet in the air. <laughs> kilometers. <laughs> That'd be pretty high up. <laughs> Where the airliner would have been at cruise. If the crew forgot to change the barometer reading on the altimeter to O'Hare's reading, the altimeter would have had read the incorrect altitude, leading them to be either above or below what the altimeter read, depending on the actual pressure, of course. Yeah. So if they thought they had more altitude than they actually did, they easily could have flown right into the lake. Yeah. And this was at nighttime again or in the evening. So it's not like they would have had the view of like, oh, that's, mm-hmm. that's a rowboat right there. <laughs> like I should yeah. probably pull up. Exactly. Um, so yeah, this is a very common thing actually, because, well, I, I wanted to look into again, just more examples potentially or something, but I came across this uh, Phoenix East Aviation Association. They're from Daytona okay. and they were just discussing various common violations that pilots will make and that will result in a call from the FAA. Ooh. Oh, I know. And no one wants that. <laughs> Better uh, than the IRS. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> any deviation from an assigned altitude by more than 300 feet will result in a violation. Okay. So that's the reason why when you're in flight school, the instructors always remind you, check your altitude. So anyways. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what they sound like. Yeah. And, and, and these deviations are often the result of communication error between pilot and controller. So again, we did get that one instance in the accident report that said that the pilot initially when he was communicating with ground control, he read back the reading incorrectly that ground control gave him. And so yep. ground control issued it again. And then the second time the pilot read it back correctly. Right. So I don't know if that had something to do with but, it. But then, but then that... That fact kind of takes away from the idea that they could have been that far off on their altimeter. Yes. And again, like this reiterates the point that Chris made about how like this altitude deviation can also occur if the pilot forgets to set or reset his altimeter to the local altimeter setting. Yeah. Or if the pilot misinterprets the instrument itself. Okay. Or perhaps if the instrument isn't working. Right. So. And I feel like I'm leaning that way mm-hmm. because here's the thing. I Complacency... Definitely can be a thing. I totally get that. I get how people can miss checkpoints. They can miss steps. They can miss these things. This wasn't, this was a short flight. This was a flight that these, there was two, first of all, there's a co-pilot and a head pilot. So that means two people are going to have to make the same mistakes. So co-pilot and yeah. right, the, the main. There was two co-pilots. Oh, great. Even, so there's, so like, there's three yeah. people in the cockpit. Yeah. Um, so that means three people are going to have to make the same mistake. For, if, for this to take place. If they're all responsible for checking the same equipment. Because maybe they all have differentiated duties. True. 
And if the pilot thought he had it all under control, hunky-dory, then maybe he didn't ask Well, that's for... another question that actually we probably should have asked because, like, from, well, <laughs> from just, like, watching movies and stuff, like, presumably the co-pilot isn't just going to have their own specific duties. They're they're probably going to double-check a couple of other things you that think. the other pilot's going to do. Otherwise, what the hell's the point of having a co-pilot, right? Yeah. Um, so, short, routine flight... New York to Chicago, it's not a long distance. Mm-hmm. It's sort of interesting that you'd still have to set your altimeter to the O'Hare's airport, like Chicago's airport's pressure. Like, Why? Because it's not that far away. <laughs> like, You know what I mean? Like, You're not traveling any great distance. It's just interesting. Like, obviously, you're making oh, adjustments as local, you go. Though. No, I know. Yeah. Exactly. So it's like you're making these adjustments, but you would have made these adjustments hundreds of times. So literally the only thing that makes sense in this is the complacency factor. I think factor. it's when you change your altitude is when you would adjust that. And exactly. It would be hundreds of times. Yes, it would because you're changing your altitude when you come into land, which is what they were doing. They adjusted their altitude from 26,000 feet to lower because they were coming, they were, they were approaching Chicago, mm-hmm. right? So you're coming from a higher altitude to a lower altitude to approach your landing. And that's when they plummeted into the lake. Yeah. So they would have had... The idea that I got was that you would change it well, on your descent. You would change it to the the local. Right. So you change it once. You wouldn't be changing it hundreds. Yeah, I know. Of I'm times. saying they've made that flight hundreds of oh, times. Oh, sorry. They've done I thought that. you said in the they've same made flight. That, no, no, no. They've okay. made that routine flight and made that adjustment hundreds of times on that flight from New York to Chicago. My, if it is the same pilots. They said that these pilots. Okay. These these were veteran pilots. Okay. These were not new pilots. They were. They were making this flight for years and years and years. Obviously, <laughs> pilots kind of get shuffled around all over the place, right? If they're working in commercial air airline yeah. no, and then, stuff like that. Like, definitely. The story with this one goes, yeah. though, that these guys were experienced. Uh-huh. Which I'm is not what, doubting they were. Which is yeah. just what made it. And, and of yeah. course, that's like lots of these stories. I mean, even Moncla was a younger pilot, but he was a reputable one. Like and people, now that you're saying this, every time you say they were experienced, that they'd done this hundreds of times, makes me think they were complacent, maybe. And they're making those those things, right? Like like I was saying from that aviation where it's like no, it, I know. it, it I becomes get more and more dangerous the I more times that. you've done things because you start to skip stuff. You start to do little shortcuts. You start to... No, I totally get that. Yeah. But and at the same time, though, it's like when we use the example of like a truck driver that's going really long distances and you can become complacent because you're going long distances. Mm-hmm. Well, this isn't necessarily long distances. You don't really have the time to zone out and become crazy complacent. Like if you're flying across the Atlantic ocean, mind you, this is the sixties. It's like a 40 minute flight. Like, I don't want to, Oh my God, we're just pilots are going to hate us now. <laughs> like I was going to say like, wasn't there like, there's tons of issues. Like even with, um, like substance consumption, like alcohol use, that type of thing. Oh, I know the there was 60s? an article, of course, yeah. even in, even in the, the 2000s the, uh... and the 90s, there was issues with, like, there was a pilot that was arrested because he was freaking drunk and he was about to board a plane and pilot it. Great. And I'm not saying that, <laughs> oh my gosh, these people are just drunks and they're not responsible, but you know what I mean? Like, this was it, the Mad Men era, though. It was though. the 60s. Could have been. Mad, exactly, right? It was a different era. Could have been. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what the culture was like. If anyone was a pilot doing that kind of stuff in the 60s and wants to reach out to us, please do and give us more insight. Yeah. Because that's what we want. Yeah. We're just out here just like hypothesizing like crazy. Hypothesizing. Hypothesizing. I don't know. I quite frankly though overall think that a lot of these theories that Chris kind of brought up for us to talk about, I'm leaning towards them. I mean, I think a lot of them can explain It's almost many like It's, it's like things. Occam's razor, right? You need yeah. to... Um, discuss what's most probable before you get into the no totally and we, we got into the least probable on the theories sort of at the end of part two like i have yeah. all my crazy theories and of stuff course. because they're fun and this is a paranormal slash history show mm-hmm. uh but i think a lot of these things 
that explain the flights um, c- could come into effect with the shipwrecks too, where like a, a ship captain becomes complacent. Bird strike. Oh, maybe <laughs> not a bird strike, but like in terms of just like becoming complacent in your routines, right? Like where I'm you forget picturing, to... <laughs> I'm a bunch of birds piling up on the windshield of the boat. Yeah, the... Uh, the Fitzgerald's going down. You're just going so slow, like, look out! <laughs> so there's, there's like one seagull like coming towards you. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean in terms of like complacency, right? Like okay. you're, you're, you're on these routine mm-hmm. um, routes... You know, you don't think anything's going to happen because you've done it a million times before. So yeah. you're a little slow and maybe like batting down the hatches, but then a sage wave gets you. You know what I mean? So it's like, I totally. I or even in the case of Captain Donner, <laughs> I'm picturing that scene from Pink Panther. It was Which one is it? Strikes again or... When what happens? Um, when he basically goes running straight through the room and then right out the window, it's like... Like Captain Donner, like tripped and just fell right out his little porthole. Oh, it's like Pink and Panther no one Strikes knows. Back or something. I think it is Strikes Back. Good yeah. old Peter Sellers. Oh my like. gosh, so much fun. I yeah, love, I love Peter Sellers. But anyways, yeah, no. <laughs> so there is lots of different hypotheticals and possibilities. If you guys have any crazy ideas or anything you want to jump in with, go on our Facebook group or reach out to us. DM us on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Instagram. also Instagram. Our personal accounts are free for you guys to... Yeah, and if you don't want to do it on any public... Or, well, DMs aren't public, but if you want to send us an email too, you can uh, send to into the portal mailbox at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, let us know what you think of some of these more, you know, rational theories and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we wanted to do this bonus because, obviously, we had uh, Chris reach out, but also just to contrast some of our more paranormal our wacky. ideas, wacky yeah. ideas from the end of part two. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's it, though. This is the the end of our bonus episode for you guys yeah we hope you enjoyed this whole great lakes triangle series yeah we really do so maybe maybe we'll cover more triangles in the future oh i have a feeling we will Mm -hmm. there's a few others out there that we kind of came across there's the nevada triangle the alaska triangle so stay tuned we'll probably have some fun collabs with other people that have uh, brought those up to us coming in the near future Mm -hmm. but again thank you so much for listening and we will be back in just a couple of days with another exciting episode for you guys do you mm-hmm. want to give any tidbits or should we leave it in the... well let's just say we're going we're going to the depths of the underground yes and who knows what we'll find we may or may not be heading back to the desert <laughs> rob mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while okay all right so until next time all right guys Network.